Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I am David. And I'm excited about our guest today because over the last year and a half, we've had several podcasters come on in different areas of the country, and they've been talking a lot about, I mean, who hasn't? But they've been, we've been covering this opioid epidemic. We've been talking about addiction a lot, overcoming it, and different ways to approach that. And I know one of the biggest pushbacks with regards to rehabilitation is that it's a revolving door. You're just going to go through the process, and then you're going to wind up on your old behavior. And so the guest today, he is actually um, certified in psychiatry, he does telehealth medicine, so I'm really excited about that. And he's going to talk about uh, recovery and just the joy of recovery is actually the name of his book. It's the 12 step, the new 12 step guide to recovery from addiction. And so he has a different approach that he's going to do it. I'm sure you guys are going to love it because there is a ton of intrinsic motivation in it as well, which we love. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Michael McGee to the podcast. Oh hello, hello. Nice to nice to be speaking with you. Yes, absolutely. Thank thanks for making the call. And so yeah, it's, I, I wanna go ahead and, and dive right in. I mean, with with your credentials, I mean I, I noticed that you've you've graduated from Stanford. Uh you've been in this field for some time. So I, I'd love to get your opinion on the current state of recovery from addiction as you see it well you know addiction is a um is a severe illness it's a severe, severe chronic illness uh, uh for which um lifetime recovery rates um are probably about the same as for other chronic illnesses maybe even better than illnesses like diabetes and uh, congestive heart failure and asthma uh it's an illness where you, you really have um, people have episodes of flare-ups of their addiction, uh, and then uh, and then periods of remission. And I think we're making progress actually as a field. Um, treatment does work. Um, it doesn't work 100% all the time for everybody, uh, but over time, people do gradually get better for the most part if they're willing to to work on their recovery. Like other chronic uh, illnesses that have a behavioral component like diabetes or, or congestive heart failure, it really lifestyle changes and, and really doing what you need to do in terms of how you live your life is a critical part of recovering from addiction. Now, in your just looking at your credentials, you uh, finished your you finished in 1985 at Stanford University School of Medicine, and in '85 there was a huge epidemic at the time with cocaine and crack and you know fast forward all these years later is the epidemic with with opioid addiction and heroin addiction are there any similarities of what you're seeing um, from then versus now when you were fresh into the industry you know there's really an opioid epidemic which has occurred um, since I got since I graduated from medical school and primarily caused by drug companies that are, were uh, pushing opioids as the panacea for pain uh, without really educating 
uh, preserves about the long-term highly addictive consequences of opioids for treating chronic pain in particular. And so uh, opioids have been prescribed freely by physicians for uh, the past 20, uh, 20 to 30 years, roughly. And as a result of that, um, uh, about uh, 6 to 12 percent of everybody who is given a prescription for opioids has developed uh, an opioid use disorder or, or opioid addiction. So we're really seeing an epidemic of, of, of opioid addiction as a result of, um, in part, from overprescribing of opioids. Now, in we've had guests from Arizona and from Florida, which are two states that were hit, pretty, I mean, extremely hard with regards to the pill mills. And I, I'm not, I'm unfamiliar with if you guys were experiencing the same thing there, where you, like you said, it's prescribed by physicians initially, but then they have the pill mills that that sprout up all over the state. Are, are you guys experiencing the same thing out there? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm having a little hard time hearing you. The voice is a little bit garbled. Say that again. I'm sorry. Sure, no problem. Uh, okay. <laughs> Are you there? Are you there, well, Michael? I'm wondering if we... Yeah, yeah. It, it's a garbled connection, unfortunately. I'm wondering if we should start over again. Maybe. Hmm. Okay, um... I think Hamza just, God, we're having all these technical problems, which we usually don't. I think, I, I think, I mean, hold on. You getting ready to call back in, Hamza? Okay. Um, so he was talking about the uh, pill mills, the ones that kind of um, were in, um, like, Florida and Arizona. And he was just wondering, uh, were you experiencing that, that kind of thing out in California? Are you familiar with the pill mills? Yes, yeah, not so much. That seems to be uh, um, more of a Florida phenomenon. But I have uh -huh. to say that over nationwide, uh, there, 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 there tends to be overprescribing of opioids. Um, it's getting better. Uh, California Medical Board and other medical boards are 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 attempting to educate physicians and make physicians more aware of the risk of of, of addiction with opioids. So we're yeah. starting to see a leveling out of the amount of overdose deaths, and hopefully uh, we may see a, a gradual decrease in, in, in opioid addiction over the next 10 years, uh, in part due to hopefully tighter prescribing practices. Mm. Mm. I think Hamza got back in. Are you back in, Hamza? Okay, uh, he's still trying to. <laughs> well, I want to, you know, I know Hamza has questions he would like to ask. One of the questions I wanted to ask is, is in all your studies, before someone, let's say, you know, becomes addicted to whatever that might be, is there anything that you can, like, upon meeting someone, that you just immediately recognize that this person, that personality trait is more conducive to being addicted than maybe another type of personality? Or is it just all across the yeah. board? Yeah, if you have a history of, of other addictions, uh, let's say to cigarettes or to alcohol or uh, cocaine or, or, or some other addiction, or if there's a history of addiction in your family, that puts you at increased risk of addiction. 
I think he's back in. Is that you, Hamza? Oh, yeah, go for it. Sorry about that. Yeah, so that puts you at it really extreme. So I, I, I guess I was talking maybe more like, let's say, someone who wasn't, maybe didn't have a strong personality, and they're always maybe um, kind of following the crowd type personality or just trying to, to fit in, and they don't, you know, have a, maybe a strong sense of self. Is someone maybe like that, maybe besides all, you know, having family and, and other things, is someone kind of like that maybe more prone to wanting to be, uh, becoming an addict? Yeah, I think, I think, I think you're right. That if somebody has low self-esteem, and that yeah. makes them more vulnerable to fear pressure. So if you have low self-esteem and you're more sensitive to whether you're accepted or rejected by your peers, and if you're in a negative peer group, a drug-using peer group, yeah. uh, then you're going to be more likely to um, to be vulnerable to addiction uh, by, by virtue of your you're being more influenced by your your peer group. I think you're making a good point. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the reason I've brought that up because I, I I've seen that before, and and it's like just always kind of uh, it's interesting watching these people who yeah, like you said, low self esteem, and they they just they're going in a direction where they just need to like they belong. And if that particular group that they're belonging is doing destructive behavior, well then that's where they're going is destructive behavior. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really true. I mean, um, if you think about it, um, it, this is why I think there's so much more addiction in impoverished, uh, crime-ridden areas um, yeah. because the, the negative social pressures and, and the negative uh, peer influence is so much greater than if you're living in, in a more well-to-do area. And, and if you have a really happy family with, with strong social bonds and you're, you're, you're healthy and you have good self-esteem and um, you have really healthy friends, um, you're going to be less vulnerable to negative peer influences that are going to, uh, you know, to influence you towards using, using drugs. Yeah. Yeah, along, along those lines, Dr. McGee, last night there was a, a documentary that was released in New York and they were highlighting John Hoyt, who was known as uh, he was a, he was the first worldwide uh, recognized male model. And so, you know, he's doing a lot of photo shoots all over the world, and he's with Cindy Crawford and all the top models of that day. And everyone thought, you know, he had the world by in the palm of his hand. It, little did they know he was he was in a in a cult. He was like an end of the world, you know, doomsday cult. And you're like, how could he? You know, he he his family summered every you know every summer at um, Nantucket, and they're well to do. He he was a Harvard graduate. And you're like, well, how did he wind up in that circumstance? So I was just wondering, like you said, with the numbers, yeah, you may have under underserved sections of the population, but are there underlying themes that people can be aware of that so it doesn't come as a surprise across the board? You know, all the glitters um, is not gold, right? Um, mm -hmm. So some, some of these people with a lot of wealth and money, they may look great on the inside, but they're, some of them are a little bit spiritual, like each rig. They may look very pretty on the outside, but they may be empty, empty on the inside. 
Um, so I, I really, I think it's really interesting because really true happiness and fulfillment that really protect you from addiction aren't really rooted in fame or money. Their true happiness and fulfillment are rooted in things like meaningful, loving connections, um, intimacy, a sense of being connected to something greater than yourself, a sense of having a higher meaning and purpose that that brings you joy and fulfillment that's so good that you just, you don't feel the need to for anything more. You don't need to addict for something more because life is too good to give up the way that it is. So we, 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 we always get surprised by these celebrities who uh, fall prey to addiction, uh, but, but it really, you have to look more deeply on the inside at sort of the spiritual and, and, and psychological nature of their, of their lives to really, to really determine, you know, their vulnerability to addiction. Because along those lines, I would think of, you know, like you said, there's that spiritual tap on your shoulder when you know you're doing something wrong. Like <laughs> when you were a right. child and you're about to steal some cookies from the cookie jar, something told you not to do it, right? And so, or right. an extreme example, we're talking addiction. So there, there's a stigma, and so they're hiding it for the most, you know, that's why we're talking about all that glitters is in gold. And, and family members are, you know, everyone's taken aback because you, you thought you were always checking in with them, you spent a lot of time with them, and you felt on the surface or maybe below the surface that they were happy and they were fulfilled. Little did you know all these years later that they have a, a problem. Right, exactly. And, you know, fame has a way of, 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 of causing sort of this narcissistic buildup of a persona that you have to keep up an image and and it can lead to to this this sort of a sense of, of inauthenticity where you're really not you're not being truly who you are and being truly real with with a set of trusted intimates because in a way your fame can, can get in the way of that and so it's ironic that that that, that can actually increase your vulnerability to addiction I think by creating that sense of disconnection and emptiness and inauthenticity. Now, back then in the 90s, there, there was, I guess you would say, an arm's length between us regular Joes and celebrities. But now you can kind of touch them, right, by, by social media virtually. And so there's a lot of narcissistic behavior across the board. So, I mean, from teenagers on to adults that you would think would get past that, at least through... Um, the addiction, since we're talking about addiction, of that tension, attention, or lack of attention, are you seeing parallels with with online media and with uh, drug and alcohol addiction? You know, I'm not I'm not aware uh, of of that. It's a really you're very insightful, incredibly interesting question, uh, but I haven't seen any any data on that, mm-hmm. so I just don't know. Oh, no worries. It's, 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 it's how do people, I, I, I'm kind of approaching it from how does that person get into that scenario? And there's a lot of cases, and we're, we're seeing it on online since, you know, everything's, there's, there's no filter anymore. So we're seeing celebrities, we're seeing neighbors, what have you. And like you said, it's idyllic on the outside, but inside there's a lot of turmoil. So I hate to be the, I'm more of a prevention instead of a treatment, as if you would look at it that way, of instead of reacting to this, maybe seeing if there's some red flag that we can be aware of before they get further down yeah. uh, in the dumps. 
Well, you know, I, I think what you're touching on, which is, which again is incredibly insightful, is that there is a sociocultural context in which addiction occurs, and some societies have higher rates of addiction uh, than others. I think the United States has a higher rate of addiction than many areas, um, because we really are a narcissistic culture in which um, there's this idea that somehow through being special, we achieve our, our worth and our value as human beings. And being special can be being beautiful, rich, famous, uh, powerful, talented. Um, and there's this, this, there's this loss of the sense of, of, of being precious and valuable because we are useful to others. Uh, but instead, we, we seek our meaning and our value and our worth through being special to others rather than useful to others. And I think it, it's toxic. I think that it, it is a toxic dynamic that is poisoning our culture, uh, and, and it's exacerbated by social media. If you look at social media, it's one of the most inauthentic uh, places that there is. And everybody's doing great, and everybody's special and wonderful. It's just, it's just not real, and it, it's actually depressing. Uh, in a way, if you're suffering and you're hurting and you're in pain, and truly everybody is suffering and hurting in pain in, in ways at times, uh, you really that doesn't get reflected uh, in social media. So there's this real pressure that I think uh, makes people feel badly about themselves, and and that and then addiction is really sort of a pain management solution where uh, people numb pain with pleasure where you numb pain with pleasure rather than resolving pain in love-based ways. And, and the increased pain of living in the society, uh, because it is so narcissistic, narcissism-promoting, I think increases that, that, that push to numb pain with pleasure. And in particular, I want to also include food, food addiction. We have a growing obesity epidemic in this country, and I think that 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 is uh, also something that is being contributed to by our culture. Yeah, along those lines, I, I have to ask about uh, dual diagnosis. And are, are you finding that with, with, not customers, but people that you deal with as well as far as that it may, it may start out as a food addiction and then grow? Is it, is it, yeah. Are there so, gateways? You know, it's funny. Dual diagnosis is, is a funny term. Um, if you think about it, it's kind of like um, addictions are just one of many psychiatric illnesses. There's addictions, there's mood disorders, there's anxiety disorders, there's, there's psychotic disorders, there's impulse control disorders, uh, there's, all, there's trauma-related disorders, there's all sorts of psychiatric disorders of which addictions are just one set of, 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 of psychiatric disorders. But if somebody comes into you with depression and anxiety, we don't say that they are dual diagnosis because they have depression and anxiety. We say that they have depression and anxiety. So the way I think about it with patients who suffer from addiction is that they have addictions and other psychiatric illnesses. And the fact is that about, I would say about 70, 80% of people who suffer from addiction also suffer from some other psychiatric illness or trauma one or the other. So it, it's actually more the rule to have more than one, one psychiatric difficulty than, than to just have one. It's actually the to have just an addiction with no other, no other problems. Mm -hmm. that, that's a good point uh, because I, I wanted to see your opinion of um, 
decades ago, generations ago, you may have gone to war for one or two years, and today they're doing multiple tours, so they're coming back with those trauma disorders, and then it's overlapping with coping, so that leads to drug and alcohol addiction. Exactly. Any kind of pain will increase the vulnerability to addiction. So it could be the pain of PTSD. It could be the pain of bipolar disorder. It could be the pain of depression or anxiety. Uh, Any kind of pain will increase that urge to feel good now uh, by numbing that pain with a pleasure-inducing substance. So, yeah, you're making a good point that really people with PTSD and other psychiatric illnesses are more vulnerable to addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. McGee, you know, historically when people, I think, think of addiction, they're always thinking of you know, something in regards to, you know, drugs or, you know, gambling or drinking or sex or whatever. But how much just, in, you know, in your studies... Are you starting to see more and more people addicted to or coming to you with addictions to the tech and computers and all that? Because that's more, you know, all that's new, so to speak, compared to, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. We, we don't have a formal diagnosis for it yet, just like we don't have a formal diagnosis for food addiction. But I do, I do see more and more technology addiction, um, and I think that that's going to be a growing problem. Uh, for our society in the, in the years to come. Yeah, because we, we, a while back we had a, a gentleman on who uh, he, is, his, he went through, a, had a porn addiction, you know, he was, you know, he was married and kids, but he was at night getting on his computer and he just, that was, you know, it was just growing and growing because it's just so uh, readily, readily available on the internet. And, and he went on to say that he knew people that, you know, there's teenagers and whatnot that they're so addicted to porn, they don't even know how to relate to the opposite sex because that's just, you know, how, it's, how they've been getting, you know, been getting that is through the computers. And whereas, you know, when I was growing up, you know, it was just more, you know, the traditional path of, you know, meeting <laughs> the opposite sex in school or whatever, and you date and all that, but they don't, it's like they don't even know how to relate. To, to the opposite sex just because of that addiction. Yeah, I remember seeing a study that was uh, trying to be done on, on some young college males on impact of pornography on their psychology and their relationships, and they wanted to have a group of people who had, of young men who had never been exposed to pornography and a group who had been exposed to pornography and compare the two groups. And they had to cancel the study because they couldn't find any young men who had not been exposed to pornography. It's just very, very rampant. Um, And it really is a problem because uh, pornography is so readily available now. If you you do a keyword search on the top keywords that are searched in Google, you'll see that among the top 20 keywords, about half of them are pornography-related links. So I do think that sex addiction is... Is, is really is really rampant, and I do think that the access of pornography increases the availability and exposure uh, to 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 you know to stimuli that that can cultivate a sex addiction. And I think you're right. If you if you spend your time uh, objectifying women uh, in that way, 
then you're really not learning how to have sex in the context of a loving, mutual relationship. Uh, and and some people ha- have different opinions about uh, the, the the virtue or vice or the vice aspect of pornography. But I do think that uh, the pornography has a corroding effect on our ability to to uh, to basically same sex in the context of a loving relationship. Yeah, I think you'll like this book if you haven't uh, gotten it on Audible. I mean, there's a hard copy and soft copy on Amazon as well. It's called uh, The Butterfly Effect. And so they had talked to the person that owns, I I think it's Pornhub, and he took the model. He was explaining how it, it came to be today, and he was using the model of YouTube and that if we make it free, then you know it'll be readily available. And then he didn't know how the butter, hence the butterfly effect of how it affected so many people. And in recent years, it, I mean, it's it, the company's making so much money because here it's free, but in places like Russia, they they charge for um, what is it for membership. And so you also have to sign up like some kind of disclaimer so that the government knows that you <laughs> they can track that you're you're on that. So if there's some deviant behavior down the line, they can associate your online uh, behavior with actually enacting that in real life. Mm, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the, the, the online space. And so for our regular folks, they know PPC as pay-per-click, but the real money on the Internet is the real PPC, which is porn, pills, and casino. It's, it's a whole nother world. Mm. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Um, with those, in that line, I do want to ask you a technology question as well because in, uh, as I was mentioning before with drug addiction that there, traditionally you would go or, or have a dealer, you know, and with technology you can go on the dark web and use Bitcoin and it comes to your house. And so there's a whole group of children. I think they, they highlighted someone in Colorado, a teenager who had overdosed on fentanyl that he had purchased on the, on the dark web. So I was just wondering if you're seeing an increase of addiction-related uh, issues with, the, with younger adults that typically wouldn't have gone across town to get drugs because it's delivered to their front door now. You know, I've read about this dark web phenomenon, and we have had a few uh, patients uh, admitted to the Haven where I work here in San Luis Obispo who obtained their drugs uh, by the web. And what's really insidious about it is that um, the, the drugs are, are shipped uh, COD, collect on delivery, and the they're being targeted by these dealer pushers who will call um, their victims and ask them if they need more, you know, drugs, and then we'll send them to them. So we're actually seeing the same kind of dealer pusher phenomenon going on online through dark web activities that we see on the street corners in in, in cities. It's really, really a malignant force. Yeah, I'm in the Big Brother Big Sister program, so. My little is, what? I was with him since he was seven, so he's 16 now. 
And I remember, <laughs> this was years ago, so when he listens, he'll laugh, but I was asking him about, uh, it was around 2011 maybe, and I was like, yeah, Facebook. And he's like, nobody listens. To <laughs> we don't get on Facebook. That's for old people, right? Like young kids are always on something new. And so you have parents right. that are used to following them around or using uh, different apps to kind of track their children through Instagram or Snapchat or what have you, but they've moved on to something else or they're using apps that look like flashlights, and then when you click on the flashlight, it, it's a whole new social media site. So I was just wondering, because you're going to go, those darn kids is <laughs> with the ingenuity, but I was just wondering on your side if you could share like some secrets or something that, that they're using that the, the masses don't know about yet. Well, that's a good question. I really don't know. At the age of 60, I'm not quite as <laughs> to these younger generation things as, as, as somebody somebody younger than myself. Um, I see it. I see people presenting to the clinic with, with technology addictions. I have technology addiction patients in my private practice, um, and I see uh, patients who are getting drugs by the Internet because they're so much more accessible that way. So um, these, these are really, um, really... The, the issue of access is really critical. If, if you suffer from alcohol use disorder and um, you have alcohol in your home, you're going to be more likely to give in to compulsions and cravings to addict to alcohol because you have it in your home. Um, if you have ready access through your computer screen to fentanyl or to uh, phenobarbital uh, or other addictive uh, drugs, it's just going to make it that much easier to succumb to compulsions and cravings to addict. Yeah, and I think that was the issue with one of our other guests, and especially in Florida. They and I think that the um, they had covered this on 60 Minutes as well. You know, you had one of a physician giving like 70 pills a day, and with a straight face, he was like that person needed it, and so people were going to their traditional physician and it was less for argument's sake saying it was a hundred dollars for a prescription and then they would go to the pill mill and it would be fifty dollars and and we're and i'm seeing that with the dark web it, it's not even i mean some of it's coming from the u.s but it's worldwide and so they can get that once one hundred dollar prescription for pennies on the dollar so it's like like you said they, it's not only access but it's so inexpensive to get. The barrier to entry is so low. Yes. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. The less expensive it is, the more the more easier it is to be able to afford more pills and and really fuel the addiction. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I did want to ask you because I, I'm always nostalgic of days that I've missed and that parents and my uh, my elders always tell me about. And there was a time where. It, your doctor always came by the house. So you did do doctors on call and things like that. And there's been a resurgence of it a little bit in some pockets that I see across the country. And I know that you do a bit of telehealth. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about uh, what that actually is and what's the difference between doing telehealth versus coming in and, and getting treatment one-on-one. -on -one. So I started doing telepsychiatry um, when I moved from Massachusetts to California, and I continued to treat um, uh, many of my Massachusetts patients, 
And what I do is I use a, a HIPAA-compliant uh, video conferencing platform. Uh, uh, the one that I use is called VC, V-E-E-S, um, or V-S-E-E, V-C. Um, and it, I have a business associate agreement with them for HIPAA compliance. And basically what I've been surprised, and this, this may not be surprising to you, but once I started seeing patients by video conferencing, many of my patients said to me, my God, Dr. McGee, why didn't you do this years ago? This is so much better than driving through the traffic for an hour to sit in the waiting room for uh, 20 minutes to see you and then drive home an hour. <laughs> I can do this from the comfort of my living room. This is so fantastic. Thank you so much. So I'm really surprised that, that most of my patients actually prefer video conferencing. If you did clinical outcome studies on video conferencing, Pretty much the outcomes show uh, that, that your clinical efficacy, your, your treatment outcomes are comparable uh, from when you see somebody in person uh, versus when you see them on a, on, a, on a video conference platform. There are some limitations. You cannot prescribe controlled substances to a patient unless you've seen them in person. Uh, there's a Ryan Haight Act, which was enacted by Congress, that really uh, limits that. So if, if somebody is going to need a controlled patient, they really have to be seen in person first. Uh, and the second thing is you can't do a physical exam and you can't check signs. So for patients, for example, who are treating for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or I would want to check their vital signs, there has to be some alternative way uh, of, of doing that, that physical assessment if I'm going to treat them by video conferencing. There are some other precautions. I have patients um, send me a copy of their license uh, to confirm their identity or some other photo ID, and I also have them send me a copy of a piece of mail confirming their address. It's very important with each session that you confirm the location of, of the patient uh, just in case there's any kind of emergency. Let's say somebody is suicidal or let's say that they have a medical emergency, let's say a heart attack or something like that, these rare, rare things. Uh, that can happen, you need to know their location so that if you call 911, you can tell them where to go to help the patient. But other than those limitations, in many ways, video conferencing, is, it saves patients time and money and, 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 and is much more convenient for them. So for many patients, video conferencing is really superior to seeing a, a psychiatrist or a therapist in person. I'm always reminded by my California brethren when I complain about traffic in Atlanta, they're like, well, <laughs> you haven't been through California right. traffic, so. Especially Southern California. <laughs> exactly. The Bay Area and Southern California have very heavy traffic. Exactly, exactly. So what's your take with, uh, I know CVS and there's some other, uh, I think it's Walgreens, they're starting to introduce that uh, connect with a doctor for $49 or something like that where they'll do a, a, a Televideo or some type of video conference to determine if they should see that person in 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 person or not. Are are you seeing similar relationships with uh, addiction that you're partnering with these uh, these other outlets? Like you said, you can't make a prescription until they're face to face. But I didn't know if there were any partnerships in the works. You know, no. But I I do think that um, my vision for addictions treatment going forward is really 
exactly what you're saying is collaboration, partnerships, and, and leveraging technology. Um, there's a huge role for technology to play in enhancing addiction treatment outcomes. We're partnering with a company right now called WeConnect, and WeConnect is a great mobile application to help support recovery routines um, and, and, and support engaging with recovery support. Uh, and I really encourage anybody, if you're suffering from an addiction, really look into WeConnect uh, as a way of, of enhancing uh, your recovery. It's a great technology. And there's another company that's doing online um, cognitive behavioral therapy for addiction called CBT for CBT. And that, that has been shown to have superior outcomes to in-person uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. So I, I, we're really seeing an incredible move in that direction. I think the other thing that I that we're seeing an emergence of and that I, I'm personally very interested in is the use of online teaching and training uh, for uh, recovery, teaching recovery and, and uh, relapse prevention uh, skills, uh, creating management skills. There's a free online group called Smart Recovery, S-M-A-R-T Recovery, that has uh, behavioral resources and, and online meetings that are for people who uh, aren't, aren't able to drive or who maybe have uh, anxiety problems and can't go to in-person meetings. There's an online forum called In the Rooms, which is also available for providing online support. So technology is not all bad. Um, and, and I think that um, so leveraging technology and, and leveraging partnerships with technology providers uh, and, and other treatment providers is really the future. Collaborative, integrated care that's technology-assisted is, is really the future of addictions treatment. So you're excited with the commercials with, uh, with um, Facebook introducing their new portal that's associated with with and was it Alexa? And now you can kind of do look around the whole room instead of just being right in front of the computer. And that way, I guess that person you're dealing with can't hide anything in the background, and you know, just keep that smile on their face when they're face to face. But with the portal, it actually does like a panoramic view. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I think they're doing heavy promotion. I thought it was a national promotion, but they're doing heavy promotion here, but, you know, just getting in time for, for the holiday season. So I'm sure Black Friday they'll, they'll introduce it uh, on, a, on a national scale. Wow, very interesting. Mm-hmm. We live in an interesting it, time, don't we? Well, yeah. you got to it, – it's all perception. You could say, oh, the world – well, <laughs> I would say <laughs> going to hell in a handbasket is burning up, but <laughs> – I'm being respectful since you're in California, but yeah, it's all perspective. It's like, yeah, it's it's half sunny or half cloudy, depending on how you look at it. The other side that I, yeah, I want to ask yeah. is, um, I want to get your take on because every like from a learning from a learning perspective, there are some people that like to read. There are some people that like to actually hold a physical paper or a newspaper, and there are some people that actually can learn better in groups. So I was just wondering how you determine uh, what's the better approach, individual one-on-one versus a group recovery. You know, it really it comes down to uh, uh, 
in, in terms of, uh, of, of my practice, it, it's really trying to assess a person's preferences and, and their needs and, and sort of blending needs with preferences. So, for example, if somebody has a problem with relationships, because let's say they grew up neglected or they grew up in a very traumatic environment and, um, and, they, um, and they really have a hard time forming safe, healthy relationships, then you actually recommend to somebody like that that they be in a long-term uh, group therapy, process group therapy, where they can learn to have healthy relationships. Uh, so it's kind of that delicate balance of assessing a person's need and then also honoring their preferences. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in your book, you talk about how people that are in addiction, they, they put the, uh, the relief of the stress before their self-love, and in recovery, you know, you say self-love comes before relief of distress. How do you get people to, to switch that to where, you know, self-love is the priority? You know, it, it really is, um, it really is, first of all, helping people to understand that, that love is a better way uh, than, 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 the immediate gratification in a way that, that, that ends up harming you in the long run, which is addiction is really about, you know, resolving pain with, with harmful gratification, whereas recovery is about resolving pain with love-based uh, uh, interventions that, that reduce pain or increase the ability to bear pain uh, in ways that enhance your well-being long-term. So it's really helping people to really see very clearly that, that, that addiction is a way that works almost, but not quite, and that actually makes things worse in the long run. And once people wake up to that, it's really about helping them to see that there's a better way. Uh, and with that, we really uh, teach people about, for example, connecting to others to get help and to get support, uh, learning meditation, uh, uh, learning mindfulness, learning how to uh, practice mindful acceptance of distress, uh, learning how behavioral ways of, of um, maybe rethinking and putting things into better perspective, uh, uh, look, looking for all negative cognitive distortions and, and, and changing the way that, that people think through mindful monitoring, monitoring of their thinking, uh, reducing stress through behavioral uh, self-soothing activities uh, like uh, going for a walk in nature or um, you know getting a massage or just just being good to yourself you know I teach my patients you really if you're suffering from addiction you let's say that you were never loved skillfully or well growing up you want to be your own best ideal parent and you want to treat yourself as if you were your own sacred, cherished child. It's really adopting that stance and that attitude and taking responsibility and accountability for your life and your well-being uh, that is so critical to make that switch in order to be in recovery. I have a question with regards to that, and it's more of an awareness question. So uh, I'm assuming, and you're the expert, so you help me out here, I'm assuming that a person comes to you and says, well, you know, I didn't have self-love growing up and I have adopted narcissistic behavior. That sounds more like an awareness versus I don't know why I keep repeating these patterns and I'm coming to you to help me out. 
Yeah, I think that the, one of the keys to recovery is developing uh, what I the three stools of what I call an insightful, compassionate, and accountable narrative of yourself and your life. That's really, really critical, and it's really uh, important to understand that um, that, that we, we we evolve to become the people we are for for really good and powerful reasons that are really beyond us. None of us chooses our genes. None of us chooses our childhood. Uh, none of us chooses our brains. None of us chooses to, to develop the disease of addiction. Uh, none of us chooses much of the trauma that occurs to us when we're growing up. Um, so we really need to have a very self-compassionate uh, and, and, and deep understanding of how it how it was that we came to be who we are. I think from a mindfulness perspective, I think the, the other thing is to really not take our brains personally. I think a lot of people beat up on themselves because of the thoughts and feelings that, that they have and the urges that they have. And, and they experience tremendous shame and, and a sense of lack of self-worth and self-hatred or feeling empty or broken. And that's just really symptoms of a broken brain. And it's nothing really that people choose. It's nothing really to be taken personally. We are accountable for our actions, and we have control over our attitude, and we have control over what we pay attention to. Those are the only three, three things that, that we have control over is what we attend to, our attitude, and our actions, just those three things. And so if taking that kind of stance, which is very much of a mindfulness-rooted stance, it really creates a space for self-compassion and self-acceptance, but at the same time, paradoxically, uh, combined with accountability. I, you know, I didn't choose that thought, that feeling. I didn't choose uh, the, the way that my brain works, but I do have a choice over what I do in this moment, and I do have a choice over the attitude that I take towards the reality that I'm experiencing right now. And I think with the, it's a practice. Recovery is a practice. It's really a neuromodulatory practice of repetition over and over again, consistently and continuously over a lifetime, of positive ways of being, positive ways of seeing, and positive ways of doing. Being, seeing, and doing through repetitive practice based in mindfulness that really leads to healing and recovery. And I have a historical question since you were on the East Coast and now on the West, that historically the East Coast has been, known, you know, the, the founding fathers, it's been English, more old school, uh, old tradition way of doing things versus the West Coast, which was historically go West young men, it's exploratory. And today we have conversations like you're saying or topics like mindfulness and things like that. I was just wondering how is this approach accepted amongst your peers that are more so used to the traditional way of tr uh, treatment? Say that again. I'm so sorry. I missed, I sure. Missed. Is there a difference? It may not even be a difference anymore, but you don't really hear a, a traditional tra classically trained doctor talking about mindfulness and things like that. It's more this is our treatment and this is the way things are done. And you're you're covering it from a holistic standpoint. I was just wondering, is that the way the industry is going, or are you seeing this more so on the West Coast, or is it, is it being accepted nationwide? 
You know, it's funny. I developed my treatment approach in the 30 years of my practice as an addiction psychiatrist in Massachusetts. Uh, so <laughs> I was in the East Coast as I really developed my, my approach towards treating addictions. Um, so I'm not really seeing a left, left coast, right coast a difference personally. Uh, I know that historically uh, California has been seen as more of a new agey, leftist, uh, progressive um, place. But I think that mindfulness, uh, mindfulness-based approaches to healing and recovery are sweeping the nation from left to right and right to left. I really don't see much of a geographical difference. Now, there may be less of these approaches, perhaps. Um, I don't know, but I, I would speculate or wonder if there would be less of these approaches in, let's say, um, uh, uh, the South uh, or the Midwest but, or rural areas, perhaps, but I really just don't know. No, that's great. I, I was just, you don't usually hear it. In, in some people that we've spoken with, sometimes there are some geographic uh, or and demographic preferences. So I was just wondering from, from your standpoint. And uh, also, on, on another note, I wanted to know the process when you introduce your book. Is it part of the process or it's more of an introductory, get to learn more about me, and then people go through the traditional process to work with you? Um, to work with me, um, uh, I, I have a small private practice. The bulk of my work is as chief medical officer at the Haven uh, at Pismo, which is in Arroyo Grande, uh, Grover Beach, California. Um, and so that's most of my work is, is through patients who uh, come into our addictions treatment center. Uh, I also have a, a website, wellmind.com, where uh, patients can learn more about my practice. And, and, and register to see me individually. Um, so that's, that's sort of, uh, in addition to that, I'm, I'm doing speaking engagements and um, uh, to help uh, pro, you know, spread the word of recovery. And uh, that, that sort of it makes up the whole of my professional life right now. Nice. Well, that, that kind of goes back to another tech, technology question. And I remember when the, the market did a correction back in 2008, and most people like me that were road warriors were relegated to staying at the office. And so with video conferencing, it, 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 there was a huge uptick, and people were conducting conferences online. And I was wondering if you're, if you're seeing speaking engagements or getting asked to speak virtually in addition to uh, hitting the pavement. Say, say it again. I'm so sorry. Oh, no worries. I was just wondering from a speaking engagement standpoint, if you're doing virtual virtual speeches versus, I mean, in addition to speaking in person. Yeah, I'm actually working to develop um, some live live broadcasts with a colleague of mine right now um, uh-huh. to uh, to be able to do some, some speaking over, over live broadcasts. Uh, I'm very excited about moving in that direction. Uh, and I'm also uh, wanting to work on doing some online um, uh, uh, video, video conference recovery coaching, uh, recovery mentoring um, uh, to online groups. So it's it's funny that you say that because I'm actually in the process of working to move in that direction in my practice. Nice, nice. Yeah, it's a great time to be alive for sure, especially from a technology standpoint. And in uh, the oh, fact yeah. that, so true. You're, you're, run, you're running across people that are 
screaming out for help, even if they don't know it. So the fact that you're you're able to reach them, and like you said, in some of these communities, forums, your upcoming live broadcasts, you can touch them in many other places where traditionally you could not. The technology is just amazing, the potential of it. It's a valuable tool. It just has to be used wisely. It's like it's like a chainsaw. A chainsaw can do beautiful things, but it can really hurt you if you grab the wrong end of it. And I think technology is the same way. No, this, this is actually encouraging, especially in the realm of, of dealing with addiction, uh, with everything that's happening. And, and you're seeing, I mean, you've come along, you've seen so much over the years that there are some things that continue to work that are evergreen and there's things that you continue to tweak to make the uh, make the situation better for people seeking treatment. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I, I do want to uh, have you talk a little bit more about your book before we head out, uh, where they can get it. I've seen tons of great reviews, so I highly vouch for the book, and where they can get in touch with you for uh, future contact. Sure. Uh, the Joy of Recovery is for sale on barnesandnoble.com and also amazon.com. The uh, Kindle version is free, um, and the Nook version is free. Uh, so uh, it's also available as an audio book. Um, so those are the ways to, to, to get the book. If you want to learn more about me and look at other recovery resources, uh, you can uh, uh, just uh, go to thejoyofrecovery.com, thejoyofrecovery.com, or Dr. Michael McGee, drmichaelmcgee.com, and uh, there's more uh, resources on recovery there. So some of those, like the smart recovery in the room and the others you talked about, they can find them on the Joy of Recovery as well? Um, actually, Smart Recovery, I would Google Smart Recovery or I would Google In the Rooms to, to get directly to those recovery resources. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. No, it's, it's great, uh, and you've been a great resource. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Um, it's been another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I'm David. Dr. McGee, it was a pleasure. Let's definitely stay in touch. The pleasure was all mine. God bless you both and, and, and wish the best to both of you. Thank, Thank you. you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again for checking out another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homies Perspective podcast. Please check us out on our website at intrinsicmotivation.life where you can click on the speak pipe button and leave any suggestions for a future podcast that you'd like us to cover. Also check us out on our social media sites. We have a YouTube channel, Facebook page, iTunes podcast, in addition to Stitcher and Google Play, all under Intrinsic Motivation from a Homies Perspective. Check you out next time. Have a great day.